Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hello, everybody. We're heading back down to the farm today with returning guest Craig Wichner, founder and managing partner of Farmland LP, the largest farmland manager focused on organic farmland, now managing over a quarter billion dollars in assets and 15,000 acres of farmland. Today's episode, Craig starts with an update on his company and then shares how higher inflation and the shifting macro environment has affected farmland as an asset class, especially after 2022, when real assets were one of the few ones that didn't have negative returns. Then we dive into a case study of an acquisition they made of a 4,000-acre, 150-year-old farm in Northern California back in 2013 for just under $30 million. Craig walks through the investment and timeline to convert the farm to organic, the benefits of the conversion, and how it helped the farm be reappraised for just over $75 million last year. Craig shares some great slides during the episode, so if you want to watch it on YouTube, click on the link in the show notes. And if you aren't subscribed to our YouTube channel, what are you waiting for? Almost 15,000 investors are subscribed, so hop on over. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. YCharts report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine, helping you free up time and focus on what matters most, enhancing client interactions and growing AUM. Need to make a clear head-to-head comparison between a client's existing portfolio and your proposed one? Want a seamless way to educate your client and present market trends with minimal effort? Join thousands of users who rely on YCharts to easily answer those questions and much more by leveraging personalized proposal reports to truly showcase your value add. Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCharts' comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you. For new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Farmland LPs, Craig Wichner. Craig, welcome back to the show. Mab, great to see you. You were last here late 2020. I'm excited to get a catch up. What's going on in your life, your world? Where do we find you today? This beautiful, for those not watching on YouTube, this beautiful vista in the background. Where are you? Uh, just north of San Francisco, uh, near Larkspur. Let's get a little update briefly on your company and firm. Then we'll talk about all things kind of farmland macro and then kind of back specifically to y'all's farms. But give us the update since 2020. I, did I see you guys are now on to Fund 3? Uh, we're just about to launch Fund 3. We actually just yesterday closed a 1,100-acre property. That'll be the first uh, property in Fund 3. Congrats. Where was the was the, the closing? Oregon in the Willamette Valley. So nice uh, organic blueberries, wine grapes, hazelnuts, beautiful ground, beautiful groundwater rights or water rights in general. Great growing climate. So yum. 
All right. Well, catch us up on the company. We'll post the show note link listeners if you want the kind of intro episode, but walk us forward since 2020. What have you guys been up to? Great. Well, we're up to around uh, $250 million in assets, about 15,000 acres, 16,000 acres of, uh, of farmland. Now we uh, for the people who don't know, we buy conventional farmland. Farmland LP buys conventional farmland and uh, converts it to organic, regeneratively managed farmland as an investment fund. And we really just focus on adding value to farmland. The business has grown a bit as well. We have about uh, eight people in fund management and 45 people in farmland management. Uh, and we farm about, we lease out two thirds of our acres and we farm about a third of the acres ourselves. And our farmland is located in Northern California, uh, Oregon, uh, and Washington. Well, one of the big things that has certainly changed or accelerated, we could do a lot of different adjectives since we last spoke, is a, I mean, multi-decade defined regime that seems to have shifted, which is of one of declining interest rates and bottoming to one where all of a sudden interest rates have shot up and inflation, which is something that we haven't seen in the United States or has been a concern for 40 years, really. Tell me a little bit about that. Like we talk about farmland market in general, you can give us an update overview of the macro and kind of how it's impacted interest and everything you guys are doing in, in your world. It seems like this incredibly tense time. One of the things that I love about farmland is that, you know, there's $3.8 trillion worth of farmland in the U.S., same economic value as all of the office buildings in the U.S. or all of the apartment buildings in the U.S., but in 40% of farmland is leased. So farmland really is commercial real estate like those other asset classes, but there's very little debt uh, on the farmland sector. And maybe I'll just put up a quick slide for you guys. For Yeah, I'd love to see you have a great deck. If we can't share broadly with the listeners, maybe you'll let us share some of the slides in the show notes. But uh, there was really two massive takeaways from our last episode that really were a surprise to me. For someone even who's been a longtime farmland participant investor, the first was the statistic you just dropped, which is the absolute magnitude of the size of farmland. Um, and you can see on the slide relative to, wow, this is a great slide relative to various types of commercial real estate, office, multifamily. And we actually just did an episode on timber. So <laughs> the, the timber industry too. All right, we'll hand it back to you. Well, that's great. The next part about it is the leverage ratios. So multifamily is around 51% LTV. Office buildings are around 78% LTV in the entire sector, $3.2 trillion worth of office buildings. 78% of that is debt. And that's why you see really kind of tremendous changes happen when you have interest rates go up or have any kind of credit issues. Farmland, there's only 13% LTV on the entire sector. So really tremendously little debt. And about half of that debt is just operating lines. So it's not even the land being leveraged, but I include that in the number just as a worst case comparison. And only 2% of farmland is institutionally owned. So it really is this, it's not correlated with 
the debt markets. It's been hard traditionally to get into as an institutional investor or even as an individual investor. I know you're personally an owner in farmland, which is great. And it does actually positively correlate with inflation. Actually, I'll go to the next slide here just for background. And the short story on this is that over the decades since the ni- since 1970, farmland returns have beaten inflation by 6.2% per year. And the, the mechanism of that is actually just, it, it's really simple and easy once, once you understand it, which is that you know, rents on farmland, 40% of farmland is rent is rented, as I said. And the rent rates are basically driven by the value of the crops that grow on that land. And so as you increase the value of the crops, it increases returns to the farmers and the landowners, and that results in increase in asset value as well over time. And so very simply, as food prices increases, which is the definition of core inflation, food prices go up, the farmer's revenue per acre is going up. They're growing the same amount of food and a little bit more each year with productivity increases. And that increases the returns per acre on the farmland and increases the asset value as well. So that really has driven these great returns plus productivity increases uh, over time. And, And that's really the core of our strategy, which is to increase the value of the crops grown on that land not dependent on inflation, but actually we've demonstrated that we buy farmland that generates rents of $300 an acre, take it through a three-year organic conversion process, and get rents of $750 an acre on that land. You know, the analogy to kind of commercial real estate is so relatable, I feel like, for many people, because most people have grown up, obviously, with real estate, even if it's just a personal experience, but it's a little more tangible, I feel like, for most. For those of us who have grown up either on a farm or next to a farm, it's a very similar mental concept, you know, the commercial real estate rents versus farmland. What is the simple takeaway, by the way, while we're on this chart of why real estate has such a higher LTV? Is it simply because it's institutionalized and securitized? that debt is such a major part of the transaction versus farmland, which has just historically been owned outright? What's the reason? So the banking system is very familiar with commercial real estate uh, as an asset class. So multifamily, uh, office buildings, uh, the banking system is really designed around that. In farming, in agriculture, you had some debt increases in basically the 70s, and then you had a farm crisis, a debt crisis, uh, in late 70s, early 80s. And banks were basically foreclosing on farmland. That was not popular <laughs> with farmers. And you would basically have farmers boycotting the auctions that they would have. And so lenders didn't want to lend into the space. Farmers didn't want anything to do with the banks as well. And and part of that was caused actually what drove it is in 1971, the U.S. changed its agricultural policy to tell everyone to basically plant fence post to fence post and get big or get out. So and prior to that, prior to 1971, the policy had been much more around conservation. So about 10% of the farmland was always not farmed uh, and in conservation reserve programs. 1971 rolls around, and because of some political issues with Russia, USSR at the time, the policy became let's overproduce corn and drive down the price. 
So you had a lot of people taking on debt to plant more corn, and then the price declines cause problems with solvency for them with all the debt. And I think with anyone who's been burned by debt too, you get like some PTSD or really any sort of market environment that burns you once. Like you have a very vivid memory of that. I imagine part of that, you know, is is part of the story too for farmers where the parents and grandparents down the generations were like, whatever you do, don't take on a bunch of debt on these farms. So the kids who grow grew up in that environment are the ones who are running the banks now running these organizations. Meb, if you do an investment and then you decide you don't like a sector, you just don't invest in that sector anymore. If you're a farmer, you're a farmer. <laughs> you're not going to pick up and, and go work in a factory. And so, yeah, so the people who are on the land, that's why you only have 13% debt on the entire sector. And it's really the ethos of the sector at this point. The government actually has two... GSEs, government-sponsored enterprises, focused on lending to farmers. So you get really advantageous rates. There's Farmer Mac, which is like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which lends to institutions. And then there's the farm credit system. We just actually, in the property that we uh, we acquired, we just took over a loan from the farm credit system. And that's all set up as cooperatives. So they actually give you a rebate on your loans. Our net interest on that loan is 3.99% on there after that rebate. So there's good lending opportunities, but we do like having low leverage on the farm line, sometimes none. Actually, usually we like to buy it 100% equity and then do improvements uh, with leverage if it's recently priced. Got it. Okay. So it makes sense, I think, for most people when they think about it, that farmland intuitively if you were to think about inflation or higher inflation periods, why farmland would do well? I feel like that is somewhat of an obvious takeaway. So the two things that I said were really uh, big surprises to me from the last podcast. One was what we just talked about. Second was that the role, of, you mentioned organics, and you dropped on the last podcast that only 1% of U.S. farmland is organic. Is that still the case? That that seemed like a shockingly low number to me. Well, great news is up to 1.2%. Oh, baby, it's up 20%. That's a better way to say it. 20% increase. <laughs> That's crazy. It's a surprisingly low number. You know, uh, over 6% of the U.S. food budget is spent on organic food. The additional margins are great. So 50 to 200% uh, price premiums are there but that re and, and there's tremendous consumer demand so the ceo of costco caught 10% of all organic food in the us is sold through costco so it's an amazing channel but their ceo says that they can't get enough organics to stay in business day after day so it's really a supply limited market if the if there was more organic food You'd have a larger market, but you need that certified organic land in order to grow organic food in order to serve that market. And it's that three-year transition to organic that really holds people back, holds farmers back from converting. My brother's doing it right now in uh, Western Kansas. This, If you're watching this on YouTube, this might even be me do the farm he's doing. And he says it's not easy and it takes a while. Three years to get certified. And one of the big challenges is actually you can't just monocrop. Like the most operationally efficient way of managing farmland is to farm one crop 
year after year after year, right? And only rotate when you have to. If you're looking at maximizing soil health and doing regenerative agriculture, then you need basically four crops grown each year and you need to rotate those fields over time. Is that part of a requirement for the organic label or is that more on the regenerative side or how does that work? So that's more on the regenerative side, but because we do that, it makes it very easy for us to get certified organic. In general, in crops, you need to rotate your crops. If you try to grow corn three, four, five years in a row, you're going to have all kinds of soil pests, all kinds of above ground pests. You're going to have a tremendous amount of weeds and you really need to break that cycle. And so what most farmers in the Midwest do is they maximize the time they can do the corn by doing genetically engineered crops and applying lots of pesticides and herbicides on the land and then rotating the rotation that they do is just usually like one year to soybeans, uh, which have a whole different set of pests and then rotate back, adds a little bit of soil nitrogen as well, and then rotate back into corn. So that's the primary uh, rotation, but it's very dependent on genetically modified crops and lots of pesticides and herbicides. If you want to go away from that, use more natural systems, then you need these at least three, but generally four crops each year uh, and then rotating over time. That's very challenging for a farmer. And if you think about the average commodity farmer in the US has about eight and a half million dollars worth of land and equipment, and they make just $250,000 a year. But if they take three years and convert that through to organic, that's $750,000 that they're not going to have to send their kids to college or fund their retirement or various things like that. So that really is a big barrier. So looking at this chart, I, I love when things are very simple for me on the investing side. And to me, 6% organic food market share, 6.3, 1.2% organic cropland. There's a spread there to be earned. And it's getting wider, by the way. And if there's price premiums, 50, 200% price premiums organic, why are more people not taking advantage of this? What's the hindrance? So part of the issue is that farmers themselves, so you know, 98% of farmland is owned by the farmers and 2% is institutional. So the big barrier to the existing farmers is that three-year conversion period. It's how do they fund, in essence, that transition to organic. There's a lot of expertise issues, like you actually need to know how to do this. It's much harder to grow four different crops each year and find different markets to sell them to and have the equipment to do that as well. Scale becomes very, very important to handle that. On the institutional side, we're at $250 million. We're one of the 14 largest farmland managers in the US, which is kind of a shocking number if you're used to other forms of commercial real estate. Uh, but we're the largest focused on organic and regenerative agriculture. So I'd actually love for there to be more competition in this space. I think that there's a tremendous opportunity in this. But when I look around at the other institutional investors, two things hold them back. One is still kind of a general bias against organic, like the general bias against uh, organic agriculture, uh, which to some extent is kind of going away on the surface, but the farm managers underneath it still really really believe that. They they literally tell me that organic doesn't work, uh, even though it's a 
$60 billion a year business. So that's not true. And then the second thing is that they're talking to their investors about buying an asset that generates steady cash flow from day one. They talk about the cash flow that they generate from day one, and you can't take it through a value add process if you're sold them on getting cash flow from day one. We tell our investors they're not going to get cash flow for three years. We're going to take it through the organic conversion process, and then we're going to get the stepped up rents from $300 an acre to $750 an acre, or it might be four or five years if we're converting part of the land over to organic blueberries or wine grapes or other crops like that, more what are called permanent crops. So and when the investors come in with that nice kind of longer term time horizon, that five years or more time horizon, and they know up front they're not going to get cash flow right in the beginning, then it makes a lot of sense, but it also shrinks the pool of investors. As we're talking about this organic transformation, is it a big cost? Like, you know, I, I'm thinking of like barriers and it just seems so obvious to me. Is it something that like, is there a big fee to pay for this to get certified? Is there a lot of like documentation? I mean, you and I were joking before this began and I was lamenting um, how problematic dealing with just government permitting was for just renovating our office. This has been going on for six months. It should have taken one week, maybe. We didn't even do anything. <laughs> so we cleaned up the space. But I mean, my God, just dealing with the government. Is this a big barrier or is it actually, once you learn how to do it, fairly templated and simple and is it expensive? Like what's the process like for someone who's never been through it? So it can be as simple as just essentially not farming the land for three years and then not farming organic crops. It is more complicated in that when you're switching from potentially like monocropping corn to four diverse crops, you kind of have four times the complexity that you had before. Our farm management team gets the land certified organic. We map out a 10-year crop rotation plan uh, on the land. And by buying at least $50 million worth of farmland in one tight geographic area, we have enough that we can say, okay, great. Well, we have 600 acres of land available for tomatoes every year for the next 10 years, it's just going to rotate around the farm. So part of the land can go in pasture, for example, part to organic vegetables, part to grains, and then back into pasture. But every year, the same kind of ratios uh, of land are there. And so we'll go out and we'll find the best sheep and cattle tenants for the pasture, the best organic tomato farmers or organic sweet corn farmers for the vegetable rotations, green beans, and the best grain farmers as well. And then lease that out as essentially multi-tenant commercial real estate. It sounds altogether too sensible. So let's talk a little bit about you guys. Last couple of years, you could either do it through case studies. You could just talk about kind of broad terms, what you guys have been looking for, what you've been buying, any market trends you want to talk about, have prices. I mean, I, I, I've seen your returns and I, I know how um, the funds work, but any sort of overview you want, you can kick it off and we can kind of go through uh, any which way you want. Probably the best way to answer your question is an example of a farm that we've taken all the way through the conversion process and really created a lot more diversity on that. And so there's a new slide up here if people want to look at that on uh, on YouTube. But 
so uh, one of the properties that we bought was a 4,000 acre farm about 55 miles east of San Francisco. And we bought it for around $30 million. Uh, it was recently appraised for a little over $77 million. And the conversion process was pretty interesting. When we bought it, it was great farmland, some of the oldest water rights uh, in California, actually pre-1914 uh, water rights. So our water rights are senior to the state of California. We can talk about the value of water, Matt, because... I think that's one of the best reasons to buy farmland is actually to get what I think is the most mispriced asset class around, which is water. But just looking at at farmland uh, for this case study uh, is we bought this property, had two tenant farmers on the land, each farming about 2,000 acres, and they had been farming it for around 50 years. And both of them were using the exact same crop rotation on the land, about two-thirds alfalfa. 25% corn, and the rest of it, about 5% tomatoes on that land, just uh, rotating around through a five-year crop rotation. And the revenue was under $350 an acre for that. When we bought it, we took it through an organic conversion process. One of the farmers wanted nothing to do with converting to organic. <laughs> he was a 91-year-old guy uh, who had made a ton of money in uh, selling land for property development and just kind of enjoyed farming 10,000 acres. And he said, you guys want this 2,000 acres back? We're done. Just let us know when you want it. Uh, and the other group we actually worked with to help actually do the work on the land uh, as we were converting it to organic. Uh, and uh, fast forward to today, where in the past, there were no organic acres. We now have over 2,900 acres certified organic and in permanent crops, went from three conventional crops to 12 crops uh, today, and went from two farmer tenants to seven farmer tenants uh, on that land, and increased the revenue per acre for us from just under $350 an acre to over $800 uh, per acre. So really significant increase in the performance of the land and it works and actually these numbers reflect you know only one of the things that we've done is we identified some of the ground that was just ideal for organic blueberries on that ground so about 600 acres so we went out we established a partnership with Driscoll's we have expertise uh, in uh, blueberries so we actually planted them uh, ourselves and we're just partway through the maturation process of those blueberries our net last year net profit uh, was uh, over eleven hundred dollars per acre on those blueberries that'll grow to around ten thousand dollars per acre maturity. So the the numbers that I'm quoting over $800 per acre will actually increase quite substantially as that matures. You guys use a little bit of debt. I know we talked about it in the beginning. How do you see that? Are there any sort of fence posts or broad points of reference you use for like how much debt you'll employ on a, on a farm or an operation or a purchase? How, how do you think about it? It's pretty sensitive to debt prices. So up until a few years ago, we were very comfortable with debt. So typically, we would like to see 30% plus or minus 10% on debt as kind of a, a reasonable uh, LTV number as the prices increase. And because of some of the debt that was available in the space with the government-sponsored enterprises, uh, you were able to get it at a discount uh, to already kind of cheap kind of free money rates. 
now the debt markets are just not functional. Um, as the rents, as the rates were going up, we shifted over to a hundred percent equity for buying the properties and then using debt to do the improvements. But now we're pretty much looking at just a hundred percent equity for the whole thing. So, in the case we we were able to assume this debt at three point nine nine percent, so that was that's an acceptable. It's only just a little over twenty percent of the asset. So, so. We've had um, we've had you on the podcast before. We've had a number of farmers on the podcast, and I, and I think if you were to do the word cloud or look at the words that get used most, water's up there. Maybe d- dig a little more. Tell us a little uh, deeper about why this is so important. How do you protect yourself against mistakes here or getting in trouble with a property that either may not have the right water rights or that in the future when it comes to global warming or changing geopolitics and borders how you protect yourself and we have a big screen basically on which areas are going to be neutrally or positively impacted by climate change which ones are going to be negatively impacted Uh, and through this the opportunity to buy water has been just really eye-opening for us we actually value the dirt and the water separately. Uh, so, uh, and when you do that, we often feel like we're buying the dirt and getting the water for free. I was going to say, like, what's the traditional bake, uh, breakdown if you were to actually, like, you know, is it like 90% land value, 10% water mentally? Like, I know there's probably not an exact breakdown, but is there sort of a construct you think about it? So, that's actually pretty good. And it's actually just wacky. Like truly the water prices are really just broken, but I'll give you some examples to anchor this. So in uh, Oregon, for example, 10, 12, about 15 years ago or so, the dry land prices were like as low as $2,500 an acre and the water rights were another uh, $2,500 an acre. So the irrigated land might sell for $5,000. Okay, but you fast forward to today, the dry land prices are around ten thousand an acre, and irrigated land is around twelve thousand five hundred dollars an acre. So the land prices have increased, but the value of the water rights hasn't increased uh, during that time. That that's a place that uh, we can look at very very good data. The value of that water right, either on a cash flow basis or on an asset value basis, because really water is a property right, just like owning a piece of real estate, just associated with farmland, kind of blended and blurred together uh, with farmland. Water is something that really has a tremendous value. Australia has set up a water market. The United States has not. If that happens, it will be a massive change. So you guys currently are California, Oregon, Washington, is that right? That's correct. Going back to kind of how investors think about this, where it slots in, we've long talked about real assets and, you know, real assets are not homogenous. You know, you have real estate, which is obviously very different commercial real estate. Even within commercial real estate, you have data centers, you have single family housing, you have office space university, sort of uh, medical, on and on and on. You have farmland and things like that. But even again, within farmland, you have 
corn and wheat in the Midwest versus blueberries in the Northwest versus ca- cannabis in California versus wine grapes. Like it's also a very diverse asset class. That having been said, we tend to lump real assets together for similar characteristics. But 2022 is a good example where many types of real assets did very poorly. Farmland or is, was probably, to my knowledge, one of the only few long-only assets that had great performance. Is, is that a fair comment? I'm trying to think of even, you know, what else may have uh, endured last year. Stocks and bonds obviously did terrible, but farmland put up a, a solid year. Is that accurate? That is accurate, actually. Uh, so on average, farmland is up about 10% and just over one year over year. So 21 to 22. And some areas like the Midwest are up. I'm looking at Iowa, for example, at uh, up 19.7%. Uh, and then some areas on the West Coast, yeah, around uh, 8, 9, 10% as well. Farmland really is interesting in that 53% of U.S. farmland grows two commodity crops, corn and soy. Uh, and most of that farmland is in the Midwest. And so when you think about farmland prices, the dominant price is that Midwestern farmland. But there's 300 different crops grown on the West Coast. And it provides... or more of fruits, nuts, and vegetables, for example, uh, in the U.S. So very, very, very large markets uh, that are diversified. One of the interesting things about the Midwest farmland is that it's very liquid. So the auction markets that they have in the Midwest and all the farmland is sold based on CSR points, corn suitability rating points. So how much corn can you grow uh, per acre? is what it's priced on. And so it effectively becomes almost this commodity priced asset with a liquid market through the auction system that can change very rapidly. And there has been a lot of capital going into that space, but it results in imbalances because the farmland, for example, on the West Coast doesn't have that same kind of liquid markets. If you're an outside investor, a non-professional investor, it's harder to find property and harder to find an operator for those assets. And so that's why these markets have have gone up less uh, than the Midwest. And it results in imbalances because if you actually do some math and you say, hey, how much corn can I grow per acre in Iowa versus our farm in Washington? And one thing that people don't know is that uh, farmland where we are in Washington uh, actually produces the most amount of corn per acre uh, uh, in any county uh, in the U.S. Uh, so partially because that? that's surprising to me. It's a great growing climate, but partially because it's irrigated. So we can provide just the right amount of water that's needed, whereas the Iowa farmland is more rain fed and a little bit subject to the variability. So we can make it rain exactly when we want it to. It's very high productive farmland, but the price of that farmland, Iowa farmland, has been selling for $20,000 an acre used to be a high price. Now they've had farmland sales at $30,000 an acre. The farmland where we are in Washington, for example, is closer to $15,000 an acre. Produces the same amount of corn per acre. If you wanted to produce corn, doesn't it make more sense to buy, for example, in Washington uh, than in uh, Iowa? Yes, but it is a very kind of regionalized market and it is affected by the liquidity of these markets as well. Anyway, it's a it's a really interesting sector and it's very not correlated. It's correlated with money printing, 
and not correlated with the debt markets. And that's, I think, a good general place to be macroeconomically. Yeah. And as the world goes haywire and you can watch stocks and bonds go up 10% a day, you can say, here's my farm. I can't do anything with it, which I think is a feature, not a bug. Talk to us a little bit about how you guys put together these funds. So for investors, is it still accredited only? What's the minimums? It is uh, uh, accredited only. It, it's a 506C, which allows us to talk publicly uh, about what we do. Uh, but the and, and that's a new kind of Jobs Act structure. It's unlimited amount of capital that we can raise in general. Uh, but it does mean that every investor who comes in has to be verified uh, third party accredited. Uh, on that 50k minimum we want people to be able to participate oh man that's accessible that's great uh, you know we try to make it as accessible as possible and we do have institutional uh, investors large wealth management firms uh, have their clients invest with us and uh, high net worth individuals and family offices as well when i get around to selling some of my farmland i will invest some proceeds with you guys i like what you're doing whenever that may be one day talk to us a little bit about all right so fund three for example versus the prior funds, what is the goal on the composition of that? Like, so is it going to be, you know, five different geographies? Is it going to be one specific geography, types of crops? How do people get the money out? You know, what, what are the mechanics of the fund for someone who may uh, may invest today? Can they withdraw in 20? I'm trying to do the math. What are we, 2020, 2033? I can't even say it. <laughs> Sometime in the future. <laughs> So 2023 is right now. So we'll actually launch that fund this quarter on there. We just acquired this uh, anchor 1100 acre property. Uh, otherwise, we would have launched fund three already. But uh, that's a nice uh, anchor property for us. Look, our strategy is based on buying at least $50 million worth of farmland in one tight geographic area. So we can have an on-site farm manager and really manage that as a as you'd manage a 400-unit apartment building. And that makes it really easy for us to buy the 100-unit apartment building next door or the 1,000-unit apartment building uh, next door without really expanding our headcount on that. So we have three major hubs, Northern California, Oregon and the Willamette Valley, uh, and Washington. Uh, those are great growing regions. The new fund will is uh, will raise somewhere between 250 and $500 million dollars. And uh, buy farmland generally in those geographies, plus we'll add one more geography. At this point, it's probably going to emphasize Oregon and Washington. Uh, just we like the pricing dynamics uh, where they are right now. We think there's a lot of opportunity uh, in those areas. And the investment generally, it's a it's a officially a 10-year fund with uh, one-year optional extensions. We tell the investors not to expect cash flow during the first three years. Uh, and then as it's available, we'll distribute that cash flow. Then they'll have an opportunity to exit at the end, or they can stay in as long as they want. So our, I view these as kind of 30 plus year assets. Farmland is just this great asset class. And so we've designed it so that, yes, our job is to increase the cash flow and provide liquidity to investors as quickly as possible, but also not force them out, not force them to have a taxable loss and then just try to look for another property. I imagine some people are thinking about this generationally, where if given their choice, they would probably just roll or, or continue with the properties, you know, not indefinitely, but certainly, you know, for the foreseeable future. 
that's how I think about it. For me, I do want to give the investors liquidity as quickly as possible, but I also want to be kept on my toes and not give them a reason to want to exit. Right? This, these are these are great assets, uh, and we do think about it multi generation. What events over the past few years has caused the most interest? If you could correlate it, I wonder if like Silicon Valley Bank, you know, in my mind, oh, there's there's certain things that'll just drive money elsewhere. So Silicon Valley Bank is the type of thing. It's like, all right, well, A, I got to figure out if I have too much money in one bank. B, is it a bank that may disappear into the ether? B, should I be getting a better return on my money than 0%? or something like COVID or something like inflation, you know, really ramping up is uh, last few years. I mean, obviously 60, 40 getting smashed last year while farmland, you know, outperformed it by what, 20 percentage points, some just astonishing number. Is there anything in particular where your your phone starts ringing off the hook or you start to get emails other than the MedFaber show? Anything else that's like, oh, people are actually waking up to this uh, this concept? Well, you do have very smart investors that are not thinking inside the box, and you've just done a phenomenal job on really articulating some of the complex trends that are happening and great strategies for moving forward. But really, over the during the COVID period, I got the sense that people were really looking, they were concerned about the global economy. The government had just printed a tremendous amount of money, increased money supply 30% or more, and uh, they wanted to put their money someplace safe. And so that that was kind of a general theme uh, for people. And that did have a good effect on people uh, coming to Farmland LP. Yeah. You know, I'm always thinking about where investors come from, their motivations. And in your area, it's interesting because there's people that probably come to you from A, I don't have farmland exposure aspect. There's people that are looking at it from a pure diversification or return perspective. There's other people that are probably looking at it from honestly, like a, a regenerative organic stewardship. You know, they like, hey, I want to invest, but I want to invest somewhere where it's thoughtful versus faceless or, you know, do no evil, uh, said differently. And then I imagine it's also a mix of individuals, family office, all types do you think it's just a little bit of everything? What's your experience been over the past number of years? You got to get all, you know, because like I, I imagine it's a little harder for like the average financial advisor. I mean, unless they're placing, say, hey, clients, a bunch of you guys uh, invest because you don't have a, a public vehicle, which for that channel makes it a little harder for like someone at UBS or Morgan Stanley or something. Is a little bit of everything and motivations varied as well? I think so. But you know what? Uh- Bill Gates coming out as uh, one of the largest farmland owners, I think, also had uh, an impact on people. And if you do the math around that, he put around 5% of his assets uh, in farmland. And that's kind of a good anchor number for people. You should have diversified commercial real estate exposure, real assets uh, exposure. And around 5% in farmland is just kind of a good good enough for Bill Gates, right? Uh, and I do think that there's just increased concern uh, about how leveraged in a general sense, not with a capital L, not with a capital debt uh, standpoint, but how leveraged the financial markets are and how leveraged people's portfolios are just to stocks and bonds. So, One of the questions I wanted to ask was, what is, um, 
I, I toured a green, one of the largest greenhouses in the world about a week ago. It's mainly tomatoes and cannabis, but it's one of the most technologically advanced buildings I've been in, I think, ever. And you start to see the role of robotics really accelerate on the farm. I mean, I joke on here all the time that one of the most advanced pieces of machinery from my childhood was riding around on a tractor, right? Which many years ago had GPS and a TV and everything, air conditioning. But today it's like next level and it seems to be accelerating. What are your thoughts there? I mean, I imagine one of the ways that you guys could even farm eight different types of crops is the ability to efficiently, you know, work those different types of, you know, it's, it's different to cut some wheat than it is to harvest some strawberries on and on. What's the role that automation is playing and how quickly is that like adoption curve happening here in 2023? There's a tremendous amount of technology that's being advanced on the farm and it's tractors, uh, cutting heads, automatic har- uh, automated harvesting uh, equipment for permanent crops uh, as well, not just kind of wheat and corn that you might normally think about. But uh, for example, if you look at blueberry harvesting, one blueberry harvester with four people on it uh, can harvest as much as 125 hand harvesters. Uh, And really most uh, blueberry fields out there are set up for hand harvesting. You have to kind of basically do everything different with your plants and your plantings and your rows and your varietal selection, et cetera, uh, to be able to do the machine harvest. But you get fresh market quality blueberries um, with four people uh, instead of 125 uh, people. So you really get dramatic cost savings, quality uh, increases as well. Talking about the uh, vertical farming, we could do vertical farming on our land. We have a lot of great land. We have water, sunshine, labor. Uh, Etc. But when I do the math, an app harvest is probably a good example. To do a 60 acre greenhouse uh, would cost them around $2.5 million per acre for that greenhouse. And for that same amount of money that it costs them to build a 60 acre greenhouse, I could buy 10,000 acres of irrigated farmland. Greenhouses are depreciating assets. Their operating costs are high, typically around twice the cost per pound of food than uh, farmland-grown stuff. But really, in 10 years, the question is, well, would you rather own a 10-year-old 60-acre greenhouse or 10,000 acres of irrigated farmland? So so just from an investment standpoint, I'm a big fan. I still think there's tremendous value on the farmland side. If I thought that there was a a lot of opportunity in the controlled environment sector, we'd be investing there as well. But it's really narrow selection of crops, things that have a quick turnover and high dollar value per square foot uh, are the things that make sense. So think tomatoes, strawberries, cannabis, et cetera. Yeah. What is the hip rating and why are you guys number one? Oh, because we're awesome. <laughs> so one of the things, I'll pop that up on the screen if people want to look at that. And maybe I'll, I'll give you just a quick bit of the backstory. We're very science-oriented in what we do. Because we buy farmland and convert it to organic, regeneratively managed farmland, the USDA was actually, and do it at scale, the USDA was actually very interested in what the ecological value was 
of what we did. So that actually gave us a $250,000 grant. And we brought in two consulting firms to look at what we did and quantify it for us. And so they looked, these two firms looked at every tractor pass, every crop that went on the ground, every input that went in. And on $50 million worth of farmland, those guys showed not only did we deliver a 70% net economic gain to the investor, but we also delivered 46% net gain to the ecosystem uh, in the form of soil carbon sequestered, uh, cleaned water, clean air, uh, uh, et cetera, biodiversity. And if you dig into the numbers a little bit, what it showed is that if that land had been managed conventionally, it would have caused $8.5 million worth of ecosystem service harm. And the way that we managed it created $12.5 million worth of ecosystem service benefit. So a real double bottom line return, both to the investors and to the ecosystem. Partially because of that scientific report that we did, we brought in the largest ESG ratings firm uh, to uh, to give us a score on our system. We we do a bunch of different ratings, but we brought these guys in, and this group does the ratings for MSCI. So if you see an ESG ratings at, uh, on MSCI, these are the back end. Uh, guys behind it. Uh, so they went in, we went through a three-month process with them. Uh, they score you on multiple different measures and give you an ultimate score out of 100 points. If you get 50 or below, you're doing bad for the world. If you get 50 or above, you're doing good for the world. The average agricultural firm in their system uh, has a score of 17. So not doing well for the world. Uh, and we received the highest score that they've ever given to any one of their 10,000 corporations. Uh, we got a score of 82 uh, on that. And we beat insurance companies and tech companies and biotech companies and, and, and all kinds of companies uh, on that. And so, you know, it, it's there's a 12-page report that's available uh, on this. But, uh, you know, for us, it's very important not only to get certified organic, uh, which is a federal regulated standard, uh, but also have these third-party scores that are delivered. You can't get 100 uh, on stuff. Some some kind of fake industry scoring is just like, oh, you're all sustainable. Well, oh, great. I guess we can go home. We're all done. <laughs> but it's actually really important, just like you never say, oh, we're done in terms of delivering profits. Uh, on the sustainability side, there's always another step you can take. There's always things you can improve on. And that's why we uh, like things like this, uh, uh, like this HIP score. Is there any sort of carbon credit angle to this at any point? Or, you know, I, I'm always thinking of alternative yield. Obviously, farmland is a pretty um, straightforward sort of return stream, whether it's through the crops as well as appreciation of the land. Are there other, you know, uh, alternative yield sources you guys ever look at for these properties? Is carbon one of them? So we sequester about half a ton to a ton of carbon per year uh, on our fifteen on each of our fifteen thousand acres. It's a great, essentially, byproduct of focusing on healthy soil biology <laughs> and good land practices. Cover cropping, for example, is one of the best ways to to uh, increase so uh, soil carbon, and it's only done on about three percent of farmland acres in the U.S. Farmland is the second largest carbon sink available after the oceans. 
Um, so it, there's really a tremendous opportunity to sequester carbon there. The issue uh, has been it's uh, complicated to a- actually kind of aggregate the carbon. Every different soil type, every different geography, every different crop rotation has a different protocol that needs to be developed in order to quantify the amount of carbon, at least according to the way that the carbon markets are structured today. Um, and the benefit if carbon prices are $20 per ton, they might be higher than that now, but uh, but let's use $20 a ton. Uh, if we're sequestering half a ton to a ton of carbon per year, that's $10 to $20 additional uh, income per year on that, which is fine. If you're generating $300 an acre conventional rent and you can get an extra 10 or 20 bucks, well, that's, that's okay. That, that's nice. But if I can convert it to organic and get $750 an acre rent, that $10 to $20 doesn't change my behavior. Yeah. The focus in, focus in on the big return, the big muscle movement, the big return driver, it makes a lot more sense than the rounding errors. As we just had Ramit Sethi on the podcast said, focus on $50,000 problems instead of $5 problems. Now he's talking about lattes and you know other things, but I think it applies. I often get seduced in a similar manner in our business of getting distracted by shiny ideas when uh, the main, you know, focus is right in front of my face. So easy to do. Craig, we talked about a lot. What do we miss? Uh, anything that uh, we haven't touched on today that you think is uh, important or uh, meaningful that we glossed over? Kind of the magical thing about farmland. And when I started, we didn't have this crop insurance. So organic crop insurance it basically the the commodity sector has had this wonderful benefit for crop insurance government funded crop insurance the government pays 40 to subsidizes crop insurance by 40 to 60 percent and they make sure that the farmer the government has a vested interest in making sure that food is produced every year and so one of the key ways they do that is to provide crop insurance for people Uh, and that makes sure that these farmers can stay in business decade after decade uh, no matter the weather cycles right if you don't grow food one year you've got a real societal issue so this is the this is the reason why the government will basically make sure that all the farmers succeed well it takes 10 years the way the crop insurance is set up it takes 10 years worth of growing a particular type of crop in a particular county in order for it to be eligible for crop insurance well we're now 25 years into uh, organic certification We've got a ton of crops uh, that a ton of crop diversity that is now available for for uh, crop insurance from the government, and so we're able to get crop insurance uh, for higher profit margin crops that really remove the risk. You get eighty percent crop insurance on your crops. Uh, we grow forty different crops uh, across our farms. So we get a lot of kind of inherent diversification and with that crop insurance on it, it really creates kind of this pretty magical asset class. You don't have rent insurance for your apartment buildings or office building uh, insurance <laughs> on your office buildings, uh, but we have government funded crop insurance on this. So it's a it's a pretty magical asset class, only 2% institutionally owned, and that, that creates some really kind of wonderful dynamics for uh, investors to still get into the space. Here, here. Well, what's the future look like if you guys? I mean, last time we talked, I mean, I think the answer I imagine is just kind of 
plant and grow, right? Uh, expand uh, a bit and, and keep on doing what you're doing. But is there anything else on your brain that you're thinking about as we look out to uh, 2024, 2025? So we spent the past kind of number of years really kind of building out our, our farm management company. So we have this 45 person farm management company uh, that really is just uh, amazing. Everything is done at cost. It's not a profit center for us. Uh, we just we do it at cost. So as we scale up, those costs basically get amortized over more acres. So I think we're at a very kind of nice stage to expand these these regions that we're in uh, with without increasing headcount uh, on that. Really benefiting from the economies of scale, and we'll just we'll continue to be kind of focused and execute on buying high quality farmland with great water rights on into the future. Longer term, uh, we'll create these, you know, we'll, we'll do something fun around once the assets are all fully cash flowing uh, so that it's easier for everyone to participate in it. But that'll be, uh, we can talk about that in a year or two. Now that we're out of COVID, uh, you, you do any more real world meetups? We, uh, you hold any events on the farm? Where where can people find out more about you guys? What's the best places? Yeah, so uh, our website at farmlandlp.com is a great place to uh, get in contact with us. We're actually having an investor event investor event at uh, our uh, California farm that has the blueberries uh, at the uh, beginning of June. And then in the fall, we have an investor event up in Oregon where we harvest wine grapes. Uh, so uh, we really like to get the investors out to the farms. Yeah, man, that should be an easy sell. It's like the Buffett, the Berkshire meeting ticket. As long as you're, as long as you're an investor, you get entree, you get to stomp some grapes. You get to get your feet, get to get your feet wet. <laughs> pretty much, it's pretty amazing to get back out on the farm and really actually see kind of sustainable regenerative agriculture happen at scale. And uh, pe- people say like our blueberries are the best tasting blueberries that people have ever had, and it's, it's a lot of fun. Cool. Well, Craig, it's been a lot of fun as usual joining you, um, catching an update. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us today. Great talking to you, Matt, as always. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, check out the link in the show notes for our first episode with Craig that was released at the end of 2020. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.